0: If you've missed any episodes of Rush Limbaugh, The Man Behind the Golden EIB Microphone, you've missed more great stories from some of Rush's closest friends, family, and colleagues. All previous episodes are available now on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to your podcast. Today on Rush Limbaugh, The Man Behind the Golden EIB Microphone, a special treat. We are going to examine closely the Limbaugh Letter.
1: Whether you listened every day. You are at the EIB Network and the Rush Limbaugh program heard on over 600 great radio stations. Or every now and then. Nation's leading radio talk show, the most eagerly anticipated program in America. These are the stories you've never heard from the people behind the scenes who knew him best and loved him most. Rush Limbaugh having more fun than a human being it should be allowed to have. Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the Golden EIB microphone. Hosted by James Golden.
0: James Golden here you might remember I told you a few weeks ago that my pillow had sent me their entire collection well you know what it's amazing they are so luxurious and it's time that you experience some of that luxury too my pillow makes more than pillows I love the pillow I sleep on it every night but you know what else they have they have sheets that are simply incredible they're smooth they're soft they're comfortable. I look forward to getting to bed every night under these sheets. Get yourself a set of these. They're called Giza sheets. They come with a 60-day comfort guarantee. You get pillows. You get sheets. Oh, did I mention the slippers? They're incredible slippers. There is a level of comfort for pillow products that you simply have to experience. Log on to MyPillow.com. Click on the new radio listener specials. Use the promo code Icon. That's I-C-O-N. You'll find lots of incredible offers there right now. That's MyPillow.com, promo code ICON. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have with us the editrix of the Limbaugh Letter, Diana Aloka. Welcome, Diana. How are you?
2: I am wonderful. It's so good to hear your voice, James.
0: Well, thank you so much. Now, where do we begin? Let's begin at the beginning Diane.
2: Hey, I got it. I have I have an idea. How about I ask you a question?
0: Is okay. that okay? Yeah, sure.
2: Do you remember the day that I cut off 500 radio stations from the studio? No, (laughs) Yes. no. So I wanted to tell that story before you started asking me questions, because it is so hilarious in retrospect. (laughs) At the time, it was very traumatic for everyone. (laughs) But if you remember
0: what happened
2: when I first started, they wanted me to sit in the studio to absorb all that I could of the atmosphere. And I sat to the right of you for a few years, if you remember. You were screening calls. That's right. And then I sat to the seat next to you. Then there was Mike Mamone and Kit in the room, typically. And this one day, Rush was remotely broadcasting. I think he was in California. But as long as he was there, it didn't really matter where he was. I don't don't remember where it was. But he was broadcasting remotely, and at the time, you would speak to him by pushing a button on the board every time you wanted to add or he had a question for you. So you would keep up your repartee that you usually did. Well, I used to have comments that he invited me to also make comments, and I would tell you because you were right near the microphone, and I would tell you my comment, and then you would tell Rush, my comment. And after a while, I think you got tired of it. And you said, hey, why don't you push the button yourself if you have something to say to Rush? So fortunately, James, this was during an advertisement, an advertising break. I had something to say to Rush. And I pushed the button and I went to make my comment. And all of a sudden, Kit and Mike and you started standing up and scrambling around and it was like the ER pushing buttons and redoing this and doing that and I was like what happened and you said to me that I had cut Rush off from his entire EIV network of five, the main feed <gasps> so fortunately you all scrambled and you all you know got the connection going again during the advertising break and so rush basically asked you hey what the hell happened and you did not throw me under the bus i'm still grateful for it you said oh yeah there was a satellite uplink glitch of some kind you
3: you covered me
2: and as far as i know rush never knew what really happened that you had some woman in in the studio basically pushed the wrong button so
0: okay Let's talk about um, you for a minute. When did you first hear Rush Limbaugh? When did you first become aware that there was this guy on the radio, Rush Limbaugh?
2: Well, it is a really cool story, actually. I was the uh, one of the four issue editors at the Reader's Digest, and it was my job to choose all the material for one full issue. There were four of us, and we rotated. And so I was working on... I believe it was the 1991, possibly May issue, and I was in charge of picking all the stories. And there had been, I believe, an Atlantic profile of Rush Limbaugh and that was the first time i had ever heard his name it was a wonderful profile very positive and i thought man this will be just perfect for the issue it'll round it out it's different this this guy has such personality and it's radio which we didn't have a lot of material on so i I scheduled it for that issue that I was putting together. And one of the editors who was working underneath me, whose job it was to edit it, condense it, of course we condensed everything at the Reader's Digest. She brought it in, finished ready for my pen. And she said, by the way, you should listen to this guy. Cause I said, man, well, he sounds so cool. She said, nothing competes with hearing him yourself. And that woman's name was Susan. France. And I later hired her for the limbo letter, believe it or not. But she was the one who introduced me to the idea that you had to hear him. And I went out on my lunch break, turned on the radio in my car and and I was immediately hooked. I know everyone has those same experiences. And from that time, I spent every lunch hour in the editorial library at the Reader's Digest secretly listening to Rush's show as much as I could. So it actually was, you know, necessary for me to work for him because it was kind of unethical to be paid by the Reader's Digest and spending an hour listening to the Rush Limbaugh program.
0: So how did it come about that you became the Limbaugh letter, the editrix of the, as Rush calls you, (laughs) the editrix of the Limbaugh letter?
2: Well, right after that, I think a month or two after that, I heard through the grapevine that Rush was starting a publication and I thought, man, I'm made for that. And I saw an advertisement in the New York Times. That's how we found there was no online applying for jobs or searching for jobs in those days. This was the early 90s. And so I read the New York Times. I was in publishing and that's where the want ads were for the publishing world. And so I saw this little two line uh, ad wanted editor for new publication combines humor and conservative politics and i knew i'm like okay there's only one person on the planet who combines humor and conservative politics and since i already had gotten wind that there was a new publication starting and so i sent to the company i sent a two-line letter that said, I hear you're starting excellence in publications and I am very interested and I gave my contact information. So they called me and I had an interview. You know what's fun? The second interview was with Rush himself and I did not know it at the time, but it was because of something I didn't say in the interview process that I got the job. I didn't ask anybody about benefits. I didn't ask anybody about vacation time. I didn't ask anybody about anything other than what they wanted in the job itself. And I learned later that that was just a bugaboo that Rush had that he. Couldn't stand people who just wanted to know as soon as they were being interviewed, what are the benefits and when's my vacation? And so the fact that I didn't ask those put me in the plus column.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember the day you first that you were first introduced to the staff. Beautiful, dark haired woman comes in and I'm like, wow, who's that? That's that's the person that's going to start the Rush Limbaugh newsletter. And and yeah. And so you hung out with us in the studio a while and then out rolls issue number one. And issue number one, I still have of the Limbo letter. And it was what? It was like four pages, I think, when it first, was it four pages or was it? It was eight. It was eight pages.
2: Eight, eight, eight pages. pages. They started with basically two color newsprint, eight pages. And, you know, to me, they had given me a few months to sit in the studio and absorb Rush as much as possible. And my job was to try and contain lightning in a bottle, basically, is to distill that down somehow into eight pages every month, a daily radio show about the news. So that was a, you know, my greatest professional challenge, I think, was to figure out a way of con- containing him into print and, you know, as much as it is possible. And that's why I immediately said, well, eight pages is never going to be enough. And we bumped it up to 12 and then to 16, which is what lasted its whole life. And then we went full color because it had to be to contain Rush. So it was a real interesting thing to figure out a way. And I noticed that he talked big picture as well as news and so i was trying to every month hit on for the cover story help him you know basically convey his main theme of that month so there were big picture items that would fit in a monthly publication and that was the the fun of it is to write down oh yes he's talking about this important subject education or whatever it was and then, you know, the smaller items we could do, the news items, the funny things, and the stupid quotes. So we com- tried to combine both humor and substance, and he always wanted to do original research in the newsletter. So it, it wasn't a duplication of what was on the radio
0: at all. All right. Tell us what it was like working with Rush. First time you met him, it was the interview. What about after that? What happened? How, how did your What was your relationship like with Rush?
2: Well, Rush was... Wonderful. I mean, I'm going to get choked up, but I loved him and he was the best boss ever because he, as I think you said earlier, he would choose self-starters and people that he felt would be independent, work independently and just let us go. And so he was not a person who looked over the shoulder or micromanaged. He trusted us and that trust was such an honor and it really got the best work out of all of us. I think we all wanted to please him and we all wanted him to be approving of what the work was. And so we gave it our very best every single day. And also we knew that's what he was doing. So he set the tone for excellence, you know, basically the entire team wide and everyone worked well together because of that. We all had the same mindset, but I, you know, if you don't mind, I have a memory of a pretty funny thing uh, where I think I got my nickname editrix. And this was in 1994. He wanted to do a reprint, not only of the 35 undeniable truths of life, but also update them so we had a new 35 undeniables but as i was talking to him he was standing in my office i had the office next to him at the time and he came in and we were discussing it and i corrected him on Uh, the number 24 feminism was established so as to allow unattractive women access to the mainstream of society. And I said to him, hey, Rush, you just worded that wrong. You've got too many words in there. It should be feminism was established to allow. You don't need the so as to. It's just superfluous. And so he looked at me (laughs) after kind of (laughs) giving me that one-eyed look, and he said, let me tell you, he says, you have 325 radio stations, and then you can write it however you want. And I looked at him and I said, point taken. And I immediately, he laughed. He was, he was being very funny, but he had a point. And I laughed and he laughed. And after that, he started calling me editrix. <laughs> so I think there was a little bit of dominatrix in, because I had argued with him and I wanted to correct his verdict. Too funny. So I got a note. I got
1: an email here from the editrix at the Limbaugh letter. That's the most widely read political newsletter in America. Dear boss, I sadly think your caller is right. I think Hillary is going to be on a higher platform to make her look equal to Trump. A podium, and she's got dictionary definitions here, as though I don't know what these things are. A podium... A podium is the raised platform on which the speaker stands to deliver his or her speech. Podium derived from the Greek word as in podiatrist. A lectern is a raised slanted stand on which a speaker can place his or her notes or secret teleprompter. Lectern is derived from the Latin word lectus, the past participle of the verb legere, which means to eat vegetables. The word lector comes from the same source. So... (laughs) (laughs) I was confused. (laughs) Anyway, it's a long way of saying that the caller might have been right, that they're going to have her jacked up.
0: Each week on Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone, we delve into Rush's biographical journey with the help of his friends, colleagues, and family members. Today, we welcome one of America's most loved actors and patriots, Scott Bayo The Life of Rush Limbaugh chapter 10 narrated by Scott Bayo
4: on November 4th 2008 America made history by electing its first black president. And known for his signature cutting-edge analysis and insight, Rush Limbaugh was quick to explain how Barack Obama was able to convince so many Americans to vote for him. In fact, Rush was very detailed as to why Obama's election victory was so decisive.
1: The main reason Obama was elected was a bunch of people in this country very distressed and fed up with the ongoing allegation that they and the rest of the country were a bunch of racists and bigots. And they believed that if they participated in electing the first African-American president that they can do away with that charge. They can do away with that notion, that idea. I firmly believe that the vast majority, outside of the Democrat, but the vast majority of white votes for Obama were made with that hope.
4: After eight years of conservative leadership under President George W. Bush, Rush was eager, willing, and ready to resume his role as chief conservative critic in opposition to the Obama regime, as he frequently labeled it. And it fits! What the hell else is it but not a regime? It didn't take long for Rush to start making waves with only four little words just before inauguration day i hope he fails
1: i wanted obama to fail so that my country would not i wanted obama's liberal agenda his socialist community organizer agenda to fail i did not and never have and never will want america to fail never no way i wanted America to be saved.
4: Rush soon found plenty more to criticize in what became the signatures of the Obama administration. From Obamacare to the closing of Gitmo, the Iran nuclear deal to Obama's border tactics and much, much more. For Rush Limbaugh, the Obama years were chock full of policies and bad politics to dissect for tens of millions of listeners daily. And throughout Obama's two terms in office, Rush took great pride in telling his listeners that he had no doubt the president was one of them. As he often explained on air, not only was Obama paying attention to him, he was fixated on him.
1: The Republicans are only concerned about what's on Fox News or what Rush Limbaugh's saying, and Democrats are looking at the New York Times or Huffington Post. So Obama comes into office telling Republicans that they can't listen to Rush Limbaugh anymore and get things done. That's just not how it happens in Washington. And he's leaving office having failed to remove one of his main impediments from his equation, and that would be me. So after eight years, Obama, he comes into office with me living rent-free in his head, and I'm still there.
4: It can be said today that during the Obama administration, Rush Limbaugh was at his best, staunchly defending conservative principles and standing up for America and its exceptionalism. But in the end, whether at his best or even on a bad day, few could touch Rush Limbaugh. The Obama chapter was but just eight years of more than 30 of unprecedented broadcast excellence.
0: Unforgettable. That's the impression that you, the Rush Limbaugh audience, made with your support for Rush's last charitable effort while Rush was still with us. Through the Stand Up For Betsy Ross campaign, Your generosity resulted in a $5 million donation to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Rush said it best.
1: We chose Tunnel to Towers to be the beneficiary of the campaign because we love the work they do. And the story about how they started. When a family experiences significant loss, the mother or father passes while serving our country, Tunnel to Towers steps in frees that family of a major worry during their time of crisis. Tunnel to Towers pays off mortgages in full for these families and provides them with the comfort of a home when their world has literally been turned upside down.
0: The foundation does the same for first responders and also builds smart homes for our most catastrophically injured veterans and first responders. More heroes need your help do good by donating $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's the letter T, the number two, the letter T.org. So this was a relationship that started in the 90s and, and, and continued right up until the time that Rush left us. And so... All those years. I mean, what, 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 what's your takeaway from working with, with Rush all of those years?
2: Well, you know, I don't know if you remember the Nightline appearance. I think it was April of 94.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And oh yeah.
2: he had been on, uh, along with Carville and some other, you know, one New York Times writer, and it was a town hall. It was supposed to be about Hillary and healthcare. And this was before the midterm elections where the Republicans took over as they used to call the Republican takeover. So this was still in the honeymoon phase of the Clinton administration. And Ted Koppel really liked Rush at that point and had him on. He was the only one who wasn't physically in the uh, town hall, I think Iowa. And he was supposed to talk about health care and Hillary care. And he was the first person up, and he immediately changed the subject, did not talk about anything other than all the lies that these people, the Clintons, had been promulgating about Whitewater. And he started talking, listing them. He rat attacked you know, the billing records, Whitewater, and went on and on. And the rest of the group was there to talk about health care, and they simply just ignored basically what Rush had said. They didn't respond to it. And the next day we were all, you remember this, we were all standing in the hallway before the show. And I said to Rush, hey, Rush, did you notice that you basically accused them on television, national television of being liars and they didn't defend her? And he did what you and I used to call that sponge thing he would look so intently at you when you were talking. And he wouldn't necessarily say anything. And this was the first time I had experienced it. And he had this piercing look. And he listened to what I had to say. And he didn't respond. He just walked down the hallway uh, to the studio. And then he kind of used that as his jumping off point. And then a few days later, there was the pretty in pink conference because Hillary knew she had not been defended by her own people on national TV. And so that was the first time I knew he was probably the best listener that I have ever encountered in my life. He had the ability, and even after he lost his hearing, he had the ability to absorb information, filter it into this amazing creative mind he had, and be able to then transform it and bring it out as the rush take, because he would take things that we all would suggest or give a line or whatever, and he would make it into something miraculous and amazing. And to watch him do that live, that ability to spontaneously think on 90 different levels at once, I I tell you, that was, we all have talked about how much We love him and his generosity and his character and all those things are true. And the thing that I also appreciate so much is his mind, the most brilliant human being that I have ever been in the presence of and yet very, very gentle and kind and of all good character. But his brilliance was a sight to behold. We will never, ever, ever be in the presence of someone as brilliant as him again.
0: You made a reference to it, and I want to just get you to expand on it. The sponge. Rush had this uncanny ability to absorb information like nobody else. He could read something and and pick out points that and, and find points in it and talk about points that no one else saw in an article. It could be a sentence, and he could— then launch into an original take from that that w- would turn into a monologue. He would talk to people and, and something, a sentence that they would say. He could develop an entire line of thought that no one else in the media would have. This guy, he took everything in. And he would say show prep is, life is show prep. He would take everything in. He read an incredible Um, amount of material every single day he had to in order to do a show Mm. and but he would also listen and you 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 pointed that out too he would listen to people on the staff he would talk with them and you didn't get a lot of time it was it was it was it was just the most uncanny thing
2: absolutely and I think you hit on something so important and I'm sure other people have mentioned it but not the conventional wisdom. The fact that he could not stand groupthink, he hated the conventional wisdom. It it was almost uh, physical with him. And so that natural inclination to ignore what everyone else's take was on something that he wanted to make sure that whatever his observations were and his conclusions from that were, were absolutely original. And that is why Everybody tuned in every day. And you and I, if you remember, we used to try and predict an event would happen and we'd say, what do you think Russia's Russia take is going
0: to Right, right.
2: And, you know, we would sometimes be close, but these we were with him all the time and we couldn't. Predict on a regular basis because it was so original, and that is something that I think so many people, especially as critics, took for granted about him because they didn't understand that was why so many people tuned in every day. And you and I both know that he used to say something like, "You know, saying more in five seconds than you know most hosts say in a lifetime," and. That was so true. Once I, he moved to Florida and I started working from home, I could not leave my radio. I could not use the facilities in the house because I would miss two seconds of what he would say coming back from a break, and it would be important and significant. And so that hanging on to every word was due to his original thinking and because he was hilarious.
0: When you when you look back on it all, I'm, I asked the question one way. I'm going to ask it again. First of all, doing what you did is not easy because Rush never wanted to quote unquote cannibalize the radio show. So he didn't want the same things in the newsletter exactly as he laid it out on the radio. And he would say that he did not want to cannibalize the radio show, but you had the job of making sure that this profound thinker who could articulate things so well also was represented in the print medium and the print medium is very different than the spoken word medium
2: yes and that was a hard challenge
0: i want to talk to you about the uh issue that came out right after rush passed. it was almost as if i don't know it was a god thing i guess because it was it was you know i'm with god you know or god is with me actually how how did that issue happen did you kind of was there some sort of sense of knowing what what how did that issue come about
2: well it was really interesting how that came about because i think rush knew because that was a throwaway line in a long monologue about something else and i thought that the sentence that he said on the air was so poignant. And he said, God is with me. And I I put that on the list of suggestions. Um, It wasn't the first, because he was talking about other things. But I did put that on, because I thought, what a powerful sentence that just was. And he chose that for the cover. And at the time, of course, I didn't know. We knew he was very ill, but We didn't know, and I think he may have, and that's why he picked it. And he chose the art of him, basically, with praying hands, and that was a beautiful cover, and I felt so honored to have helped that come about because I know Catherine held that up at the CPAC meeting, and so that meant a lot to her, and it meant a lot, I think, to all of us.
0: How are you going to remember Rush?
2: You know, I mostly as great, just his greatness. And, you know, you you know when you're in the presence of greatness. And he was so, he didn't wear that on his sleeve. He was so wonderful to be around, fun, just, you know, hilarious. And he always interacted with people as equals. You know, it was there was never a sense. I'm the great one. Kiss my ring. There was none of that. He would just joke around with everybody. And he enjoyed that. And however, just being in his presence and knowing how wise and wonderful and brilliant and how he helped this country. I remember when I first was hired, that at that time there was the similar feeling in the country where you couldn't say out loud the things you thought. And here was this guy on the radio. Do you remember people used to call up and say, are you allowed to say this on the air? People were shocked to hear their own ideas and wisdom reflected back at them in such a, a compelling way. So what he did was he gave voice to all of us. And I have been so Honored to have that be part of my career as well is just to be to be a supporter of getting his message to as many people possible that America is wonderful and we will fight for her. So I would say his greatness, and I think the term you used was you know a second generation founding father, and you wrote the cover story for that for the Limbo Letter last month, and that. He is going to be remembered as one of the greatest Americans who ever lived.
0: Yeah, I miss him. So before we wrap up, I'm going to ask one more time, anything else that you'd like to add that you haven't said?
2: Just what an honor it's been personally for me to be part of this team. And, you know, I will remember with just great love and joy every single moment that I was a part of the Rush
0: team. Now, I'm going to just say this to you, um, folks. Diana is, is, is one of my best friends on the face of the earth. Oh. Um, she, I, there was a time when I first started working with Rush that, um, and Diana had come on board, and I realized how brilliant this woman was. And I felt almost inadequate. And I remember asking her, how do I? It was so funny. It's like, how do I get as smart as you people, as you guys? Do you remember that? Do you remember those conversations? Oh, you don't remember No,
2: that. I don't remember that because it was, because it's obviously so not true. I mean, you are way quicker than me and, and you are got all kinds of wit and wisdom. No. And, and if anyone could predict, a rush take you were as close so as so i could.
0: so what i did was though you you recommended that at the time because i kept pressing you on it so you recommended that i watch two or three different shows i won't reveal what they were because they're all gone now anyway um you said every night if you really want to get to where the landscape is politically in this country watch this 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 read this 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 and within two or three months you'll you'll have it down. And I did. And I did.
2: (laughs) uh, What good advice. (laughs) Yes, what good
0: advice. (laughs) And, uh, but, but beyond that, you know, um, you, you have, uh, with the Limbaugh letter, like every, like everybody else that, that reads the Limbaugh letter, it's an impressive, it is an impressive body of work that, that you and Rush put together there. And I hope that, uh, that limbaugh letter is looked at by historians and by educators for what it is. It is truly reflective of a time. Those thirty-three years, those those that thirty period. How how many years did you you didn't start at the beginning? How many years?
2: No, nope. started in uh, the first issue was the October nineteen ninety-two issue. So we're we will this October will be our twenty-ninth
0: anniversary. Yeah. So for twenty-nine years, almost thirty years. The Limbaugh letter stood as the uh, the number one political uh, newsletter in America, and and you are largely responsible for that, along with Rush. And uh, what an amazing thing, Dana.
2: Well, Rush is the one, the inspiration for it all. And I have to say, at the time, a lot of people copied him, and there was the various newsletters I won't name from other hosts who I won't name and they lasted maybe a year or two, and Rush has lasted this long, and it's because of him. But I gloat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you recite history honestly well. All right, Diana, thank you. I really appreciate you.
2: Thank you, James.
1: The uh, parable about a uh, picture's worth a thousand words. The Limbaugh letter this this month was worth uh, a whole library. It was great. The, The cover of the Limbaugh letter. It says it all. Well, thank you, sir. I, you know, <laughs> we don't get a lot of calls about the Limbaugh letter, but when we do, everybody on that staff just loves it. The Limbaugh letter is sixteen. You, people don't know how difficult that is, because look at fifteen hours a week here on the radio. That is that is then reproduced on the website, and yet here's this sixteen-page monthly publication that's now gone digital. What do you do to put things in it that that haven't been said? To it's a it's a monthly challenge, and the people that put that together are excellent at it. Yes, I agree. It's good. It's a good magazine. course they follow my example. That's why it, it's, it's great. And but really, in all candor, it is it is 15 hours a week. What is there not said? It turns out a lot, and uh, the, the the newsletter is the repository for it. So I'm I'm really flattered that you mentioned that. Well, whoever had to cover, that was that was brilliant. That was brilliant.
0: Today, you get a chance to hear from Denise May, who's the creative director, not just for the Limbaugh Letter, but for iHeartMedia and Premier Networks. And Denise, welcome, how are you?
3: I'm good, how are you, James? It's so good to hear your voice.
0: Well, it's good to hear your voice as well. Now, listen, you came on board. I remember when you came on board, you were a young thing.
3: Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was 24 years old. I mean, I can't even, like, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah.
0: And so um, all I remember, we started the newsletter, Diana Iloco, who's the editrix of the Limbaugh Letter. And then the next person that was hired was you. So let me ask you a question. The first time you met Rush, what was that like?
3: Oh my God, it was at a party. And um, I was invited to when we were doing some sort of dinner and he was standing there and it was a group. And I think it was John Axton who said, you know, Denise, come over here. I want to introduce you to Rush." And I remember like being completely awestruck <laughs> and, <not> being like, <laughs> and just being like, hi, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm sure that's what I said. And he went, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Like turned the wrong way, and I was like, "Oh crap!" Like, well, I'm such a ding dong, you know. <laughs> I just, you know, when you meet him, he's, you know, he's got such a presence, and obviously, I was just in, in awe of him.
0: Okay, so now you, so now here you are, 24 years old, and and yeah. you're in New York City, and and here's this this job, and mm-hmm. what's it like? What's it like working with Rush?
3: Oh my gosh, it was such a gas. I mean, we, I mean, well, we were all, don't you remember? we were all at WABC radio. We had these small offices at the end of the hall and um, we just had so much fun um, interacting and we would sit in the studio while Rush was um, talking. And obviously the Limbaugh letter is a um, product of the radio show um, where we, you know, and take content, from what Rush is talking about and expand upon that and create new content. So it was super important for us to like, listen in and hear what he was saying and it was so inspiring. And then, and on top of it, like, you know, hanging out with you and Kit and Mike and um, we just, it was just such an inspiration to be there and, and to experience that energy, you know? And the
0: Limbo letter continued to grow and and get more and more subscriptions and we all grew with the show and kept going and so finally we reached the point um that brings us to one of the reasons that i asked you here today. rush's announcement what what you were on the phone
3: Di- i think diana called me and told me at the time you know i've never known anybody to have stage four lung cancer and um i i've known people that have survived cancer so I, at the time i i think I thought if anybody can do it, I mean, obviously, you know, we've been there through a, a lot of adversity that Rush has faced, you know, and I, I thought, well, this is just one hurdle that we're all going to like pull together and do what we do best. And, you know, he's going to pull through and he'll get to the other side. I, I was with you. I, I, I mean, I was sad that he had to go through all this, but I, I absolutely thought he was going to beat it. Yeah. And
0: were you were you listening at the moment that Catherine made the announcement or were you uh, did you find out about the Yeah,
3: I I did. I mean, obviously, I heard Catherine make the announcement. I was told beforehand. Um, It was awful. I mean, it was a Wednesday. We were going on press with the Limbaugh letter on a on the Thursday that following day. So we were like crazy busy on deadline. Um, The Limbaugh letter is written in first person and. It's just, you know, uh, it's just, it was just so like surreal because we were like, you know, we have, we always have Rush on the cover. And I think it was Monday, Diana and I had a conversation and we were like, you know, it's weird. We just had a feeling like things were not good. What do we do? Like, and, and so we had, we had talked about how we should probably in the, in the case that something should happen to Rush, have something as a backup cover, because we can't have Rush on the cover if he's if he's not here anymore in the in the same capacity as we have in the past. So we came up with a an alternate cover, and um, that was really that was really difficult because it was the first cover in 30 years that I've designed that he um, was not on the cover, and. I just I couldn't imagine doing the Limbaugh letter without him on the cover. You know, it just it's just such a staple of of what we do and how we we visualize the Limbaugh letter. And the whole Limbaugh letter is written obviously in his you know words and as I and you know we had to kind of rethink that. And it, it's just you know after thirty years, it's just unimaginable to think about how we could do that and. I have the, I have so many amazing memories about him and, and just hanging out with him and like, and I just didn't, I just didn't see it coming. I really didn't. When Catherine, you know, even when Catherine was talking about it on air, I just was just like, oh my God, I can't, I can't. And it was you know, we had this issue to get out and we were working full blast. And the only thing I kept thinking about is that Rush would want me to finish and we have to keep going and we have to keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, that's what we do. And so we pulled the, you know, pulled the cover and put the alternate on. And, and we move and, you know, we've been moving forward and, you know, trying to,
0: well, let me tell you something about that cover. Yeah. I have that cover was perfect it yeah you know god is with me
3: that, that cover was the cover we did before he died that was the cover before the cover wh- that we did when he died was the one of just the microphone right that,
0: okay well right. the cover that was out the limbo letter that was right. out when he died it was almost like the timing yeah. was perfect
3: i know it really was and it was almost surreal because when we did it, it was interesting. We had, we, when I presented covers to Rush, I often did like a couple different covers for him to choose from. And we had a couple different ideas for that cover. And honestly, we were surprised he chose that one. And we were like, okay. And you know what? Rush is never wrong. Ever. Ever. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes Diana and I are like, oh, blah, 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 what? maybe we'll do this. And we show him something and he goes with something else. And it's always perfect. It's always somehow foresees yeah. the future. I don't know how he does it. And so that cover, yeah, he chose that one. And we were like, oh, OK, great. And, you know, we moved forward. And then later on, when we looked at that, I mean, Catherine held it up at CPAC. And it was just like. Yeah, he's with God. It's like it's amazing. And
0: yeah, I was and, in the room when Catherine held that up up yeah. when she, she was, and and that was just—I will tell you—that's a moment I won't forget.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, and those people
0: that could see it, you know, they had they had monitors. People that could see it, you could hear the reaction through the room.
3: Yeah, it was really impactful, and and Rush it's tr- chose it's that. True. Yes, and Rush chose that. He Rush o- chose every cover. He was very involved in the covers and. Uh, yeah, and I miss that so much. But
0: Let me hear one of those amazing stories about Rush.
3: Okay. So I know which one you're talking about. So when we were in New York, and I know you you were probably there for this, and you might not remember this, but we used to go out all the time, right? And go to like um, fancy restaurants like Roos Crisp and 21 Club, and we always had a private room in the back. And... Um, We entertained clients when they came in, like advertisers, important advertisers. And once a time, I remember I was, I think I had just, I started, I think Rush was curious about like what I was like or who I was, you know? So I was sitting next to him at dinner and we had a great time. There was, you know, we were always having, you know, so much fun, giggles, lots of giggles with all of us. But at the end of the dinner, he turned to me and he said, you know, Denise, we're gonna we're gonna smoke cigars. Do you mind moving? And he kind of like gave me this like sheepish grin, like, and I was like looked at him, and I I didn't want to move. I was having way too much fun. <laughs> so I, I said to him, I go, well, Rush, you you're not gonna offer me a cigar? Like I like smoking cigars. And he started to laugh, and he was like. Sure, you can have a cigar. I didn't know you smoked cigars. And he had a humidor and um, that he always, you know, at those types of things, there was always a humidor. We were always smoking cigars. You know, it was a different time. It was a long time ago, you know, and he opened up the humidor. And of course, you know, now the challenge, he goes, well, which one do you want now? right? I know nothing about cigars. I was totally bluffing, right? I mean, like, and I turned to him and I go, well, which one's the most expensive one? (laughs) And he started to laugh because that was the only thing I knew that there were probably inexpensive cigars in there and there were probably really expensive cigars. And if I was going to do this, like I got to have the best, right? So I, um, so he he says, well, this one's the most expensive one or something like that. And I go, well, then I'll have that one. <laughs> and I love that story because we just we were giggling and it was sort of him. That was sort of him. Like he liked to kind of like test you kind of a little bit to see. And it was it was fun. We just were that's how we interacted. And we had such a good time. And I remember just enjoying that cigar. And I think I held on to the cigar for I didn't smoke the whole thing. I I couldn't smoke the whole thing. But like, um, you know, holding on to it for a really long time, because it was just such a great memory of us all hanging out and, and having such a good time
0: i read a uh, post that you uh put in tribute on your facebook page to rush and i and i want you to read it what you feel comfortable reading from it you don't have to read it all you know if you want to skip over a few things that's fine too but give us the gist of that facebook post if you don't mind
3: so you know it was really important to me when he died and it took me a really well long time to sort of like think about how i wanted to honor him and I have a lot of um, people who were asking me about my relationship with him, how I was doing and, you know, what he, people have, and I'm sure you encountered this, like, what's he really like? And I I wrote this post, but it was important to me to put down in words, like what I was feeling about Rush. And I, I told, in the beginning of the post, I told a story that I just told about the cigar because I wanted to give context, like to how he and I kind of interacted but I do want to kind of read some of it, if you don't mind. Yeah, because please.
0: I want you yeah. to. I want you to share this with okay. people, please.
3: All right. So I'm going to start sort of in the middle. So his friendship was unconditional, but he was first and foremost my boss. Today, it's unheard of to work for 30 years for one person, but I'm not alone in my tenure. His commitment to family values meant unwavering support for his staff's family that instituted unprecedented loyalty. When I proposed something unheard of in 1995, telecommuting, he did not blink an eye and said, do it, show me how it can be done. This was during a time the internet was in its infancy. He was a visionary and self-professed techie. This new idea of working from home intrigued him and he trusted me to show him the way. He also supported my desire to move to Rhode Island where my fiance lived and keep my job. I packed up my equipment, drove to Rhode Island, fired up my computer and modem and launched AOL. I sent him a test email and in return, I received an enthusiastic congratulations and we never looked back. Over the next 26 years, we exchanged thousands of emails. Our mutual respect meant he entrusted me to work from home with very little oversight, and I in turn worked tirelessly to support him to ensure work moved forward, even when he had the misfortune of personal troubles that impacted his ability to work and took him away from the office for months at a time. He had no illusions that his great success was done on his own. Every person who worked for him received recognition for their valuable contributions. He did not often share his appreciation in writing or verbally, it made him uncomfortable. Instead, he sent numerous surprise packages over the years at great personal expense without warning. His generosity knew no limits. He also worked tirelessly for many charities and gave millions of millions of dollars to support them. He did not boast about his charity work because it was not something you did for recognition, it was just something you did because it was the right thing to do. It is purposeful that I do not mention him by name because his name is often wrongfully mischaracterized, creating an unfair bias in many people. It's important to me to share the person I knew without these overshadowing misnomers, to share that we did not always agree, nor did he expect me to, that he always applauded individual thinking and welcomed discourse that differed from his own. There's no denying he said and did things that he admittedly regretted, but haven't we all? The difference is he was brave enough to do it under the public eye, knowing the unfriendly media stood at the ready to pounce, to lie and twist context to suit their agenda. Many people, including my own family, have tried to discredit him, who never took the time to really listen to him. He was not impervious to this injustice aimed at him. He described himself as, quote, unquote, a lovable fuzzball. And there is no truer words. It was his unwavering passion for his convictions that fueled his ability to continue his mission that made him great. This mission firmly rooted in his belief in God, individual freedom, and love for his country, his bravery to continue to always speak his truth. It is for this reason he will be remembered as one of the most important men of our time. This man, this legend, Rush Limbaugh, gave me an opportunity when I was 24 years old that turned into a great, grand adventure so that the precipice of 54 <laughs> will be one of the crowning achievements and honors of my life. Many tributes have been made about Rush since his passing from people who are more well-known than myself, but it was important from my own healing process to express my experience. I know my role will not be mentioned in the big picture of the Rush Limbaugh legacy. I am good with this because I know he thought my contributions were significant, that he valued me, and that I made him proud. My one regret will be that I did not have the chance to really thank him, share with him how much he meant to me, and tell him how much I loved him, and say goodbye to my dear friend. I take comfort knowing Roz is with God and that we will meet again and share a good laugh over an adult beverage. But for now, I will move forward the way he would want me to and continue to make him proud. So in closing, using Rush's signature sign-off and appreciation that you have done me the honor of reading this far, thank you for listening. It means a lot. It means a lot.
0: As we near the final episodes of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone, We'd like to offer you sincere thanks for listening to the podcast and a special thanks for those of you who've shared your own stories and Rush memories, or have taken the time to write and share reviews of this series. Thank you, one and all. Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone is produced by Chris Kelly and Phil Tower, the best producers in America. Production assistants, Mike Mamone, And the executive producers, Craig Kitchen and Julie Talbot, our program distributed worldwide by Premier Networks, found on the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is James Golden. This is Bo Snerdly. This is James Golden. I'm honored to be your host for this and every single episode of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the Golden EIB microphone. Thank you for being with us.